This is the Bill Kelly Show podcast. Hamilton Mayor Fred Eisenberger says that uh, the province should not allow Stelco to restart its blast furnace until it meets emission standards. Now, this uh, is not necessarily going to happen, but there seem to be indications that it might, may well happen, rather, that is. Uh, but, and there's some economic, obviously, some circumstances that surround this. But at the same time, you have to, to weigh that against environmental stuff. So where do they go on this? Let's uh, bring Marvin Ryder into the conversation, uh, business professor at uh, DeGroote School of Business of Crest University. Good to have you in here. Thanks for coming in today. Glad to be here today. This is supposed to be a good news story, but this <laughs> uh, this idea about uh, the environmental concerns, and I'm not trying to belittle that no. because those are legitimate at the same time, but is it going to actually curtail what Stelco may want to do? So, Bill, let me start off by saying this this is a boatload of conjecture, and I think everyone yeah. listening to us needs to understand this is a boatload of conjecture. And again, if you don't mind, I'm going to go back to set up why everyone's doing this conjecture. Sure, sure. So, uh, oh, it'd be now roughly eight months ago, um, uh, as Stelco was emerging from creditor protection and Alan Kestenbaum and Mr. Cheney were taking possession of the company, you'll remember that the land that they did not immediately need was going to be put in something called a land co, a land trust. It was to be administered by a board separate from the province. Their mission was to remediate the land, sell it, and whatever they could get for it, they would go into the pension fund. Uh, At that point, Mr. Cheney and Mr. Kestenbaum took a map and drew a line on the map and said, this is all the land we're going to need. The rest of it can go over there. And that was great. Um, The court still had control of that in the latter half of 2017. And to help the land trust get off to a good start, they said, well, on this land that we are going to retain, let's demolish anything that isn't of use. You know, let's take down this and that and something else, a half-built building or a, a, a crumbling warehouse. And among the infrastructure they were going to take down were three large smokestacks that had been used with the primary blast furnace. And everyone should know the blast furnace has been idled for some time. It would make perfect sense to me. You know, nobody buying the property needs three big smokestacks. So but, I, but. Mr. Kastenbaum said, um, would you mind if I hired someone just to take a look at these smokestacks? So we brought in a consultant. The person looked at it and said, you know, they're in really pretty good shape. With just a little bit of investment, you could keep them standing for the time being. So then Mr. Kastenbaum went to the court and said, do you mind if I spend a couple of million dollars to reinforce these structures? And, and I'd appreciate it if you don't tear them down. I, I don't know what I'm going to do with them, but I want to keep my options open. Well, that caused a lot of people's eyebrows to go up because why would you spend money on something you don't intend to use? Now, I've got to remind people that a million or $2 million to you and I is an awful lot of money. But to someone in Mr. Kastenbaum's position who's overseeing a multi-billion dollar corporation, it's just, you know, it gets lost in the dust. And then the second thing that – so that was the first thing that happened. Why would he stabilize these these, uh, towers, these uh, – chimneys if he wasn't going to use them. And then the second thing that happened, happened a little over six weeks ago, seven weeks ago, um, before the land trust could actually begin to really do very much of anything, uh, Mr. Kestenbaum and Mr. Cheney went back to the trust and said, what would it cost me to buy all that land around (laughs) Stelco here in Hamilton and some of the land near um, Nanticoke? And they came up with a figure, $114 million. Now, this caught me quite by surprise. because caught everybody by surprise. I thought Mr. Kessenbaum did something brilliant here. He had offloaded the environmental obligations that the old Stelco had, and he made them the province's problem. Why would you buy back those problems? Well, speculators had the easy answer. It's because he wants to start the blast furnace again, Marvin. It's obvious. He kept the towers. He's going to do this. So 
you know, I, I don't know that's the case. Again, Mr. Kessenbaum, and I've looked at his history, I can only judge his future by his past. Uh, he does like to keep his options open, but he might want to use the land to build another cold rolled uh, line. He might want to do another zinc line, some other finishing line. It, there could be other arguments for the land. And just to finish that thought off, although he bought most of the land, there are, I think, about 40 acres or 37 acres of parcels yeah. that he didn't buy, and the city is talking and the Port Authority are talking to the land trust about those. We'll hear about those later. So you put A and B together. You put all these smokestacks that he didn't tear down when he could have, and he bought all this land when he didn't have to. Marvin, it's obvious he wants to restart the blast furnace. So now you take that conjecture and you run to various people. And, and this is not to belittle what Mark McNeil did. He went to the mayor and said, Mayor, what would you think if he wanted to restart the furnace? And Mr. Mr. Mayor gave exactly the politically correct answer. Well, I'm, I'm all for it as long as it doesn't pollute. We know that uh, DeFasco, when it operates under normal circumstances, is a low polluter. But every now and again, it has some little glitch in its, its operations. And when it dumps some things outside, up comes a big plume of black smoke and it makes people upset. And we've got to do something about that. And DeFasco is. But look, if Stelco wants to restart, they shouldn't go back to 20 years ago emissions. They should be held to current standards. And Linda Lukasik from Environmental Hamilton, same thing. I'm all in favor of the jobs and a blast furnace. But, you know, let's watch our air quality. Air quality is very important to us all. So that's what the story in today's spectator is. If it is to be done, it should be done in the best way possible. But that's a very big if to start with. All right. Well, let's go down that road with a very big if for the time being okay. anyway. Uh, how can you expect them to have today's standards maintained or at least even reached with old infrastructure? I mean, that thing has been kicking around for a long time. It's, it's not 21st century technology. No, it's not. But uh, so again, let's talk about let's talk about the decommissioning of the blast furnace. So in 2010, uh, U.S. Steel took the Hamilton blast furnace and put it into, for lack of a better term, hot standby mode. What does that mean? You you spend a lot of money to keep the the cauldrons etc. very very hot in case you wanted to restart steel making, and you spend an awful lot of money, millions of dollars a year, just to keep it in standby mode. And then it was, uh, I think now four years ago, that U.S. Steel said, you know, we're wasting money doing this. We're never going to make steel again in Hamilton, so turn off the heat. Now, when you do that, when you do that and you allow the various equipment to cool down, it causes millions and millions of dollars of damage um, to the point that I'm not sure how much of that infrastructure is usable as is. So if I wanted, this is the reason why I'm saying it's a very big if, because if I wanted to start making steel again in Hamilton with a blast furnace, I'm probably going to have to put a lot of new equipment in there. And therefore, while I understand your comment, how do you expect them to do 20, 2018 standards with equipment that's 30, 40, 50 years old? I think they're going to have to use fairly new equipment and put it in there. And thus, I don't think it's going to be that much of a, a hassle. This is going to cost them at least $50 million, if not close to $100 million. And, and it will not happen overnight. You don't just flick a switch and you start making steel again. This would take at least a year, if not two, to get going. It's, it's a very big move to do. And, and therefore, I think if, if, we, um, if they say they want to do it, yeah, I think we can hold them to 2018 standards. All right. So let's, okay, part B to that question then is why would they want to do it at this stage? I mean, they're already, they are making steel in Nanticoke. Uh, there are operations here. 
Do they really need both of these operations at full plate? Do they need that uh, that oven working here in Hamilton? Right. So again, if we think about this strategically, as the company is today, the answer is no. Their challenge remains selling steel. Uh, you've got to remember just a year ago, at this time, it was still in creditor protection. Yep, yep. It only emerged on July 1st last year. So uh, it had no sales force. It had to go out and reestablish the sales force. It had to go back to customers and say, we're the new Stelco. Would you please buy some steel from us? Even at Christmas time, they were sending out sample uh, steel products that they were making to try to woo back people. So there's no sign at this moment that they are nearing full capacity down at Nanticoke, and therefore they don't need it today. Flip that around. You don't wait until you absolutely need the capacity to build the capacity. And what I have been wondering about with Mr. Kestenbaum and Mr. Cheney, if I look at Mr. Kestenbaum's history, he tends to like to start with a company, let's call it Stelco for now, and then strategically he likes to add other companies to the mix. That doesn't mean he wouldn't necessarily want to increase capacity in Hamilton, but he could get around the capacity issue if he bought another company. And the company that's waiting in the wings from my viewpoint is the one in Sault Ste. Marie, Algoma Steel. Yeah. And people in Algoma would be thrilled to welcome Mr. Cheney and Mr. Kestenbaum to town. So... If he did that, if he bought Algoma, then the need to restart the blast furnace again in Hamilton is very low. Having said that, though, what he might want the land for and some other things is other finishing operations. Because if you increase the supply of steel within Stelco, you may also increase your need to finish that steel in some way. Roll it into thin plates or pipes or whatever the heck it is you want to do. And having this space here in Hamilton that's zoned properly, etc., would give him freedom to do that. So... I'm not saying, I, I don't want to be negative about this. For Hamilton's sake, I, we'd love to see him start the blast furnace because truly starting the blast furnace would easily mean 400, 500 well-paying manufacturing jobs in the city. And that's nothing to sneeze at. But I just, given the cost of it and the energy it would have you involved, I think it's more likely he'd increase his capacity by buying another distressed steel company like in Algoma and then expand finishing operations here. But Mr. Kestenbaum plays his cards close to the vest. Our mayor, God bless him, has, has asked several times to have a face-to-face meeting with Mr. Kestenbaum so he could pull back the, the, you know, the curtain and reveal his plans. And I, I think Mr. Kestenbaum, for a moment, likes keeping his cards tight. Well, yeah. If they ever get that meeting, the mayor's obviously got some questions of Mr. Kestenbaum, too, because of the land switch that, uh, that happened a couple yep. of weeks ago, too, yep. which really caught the city off guard. And they feel uh, kind of cut the knees out from under them because they were counting on revenue from that potential well, sale, in, in or, or at least a sale. Right, in part, you see, I, and tax revenue. The, the fear had been that the old Stelco, the U.S. Steel Canada, sat on these hundreds of acres of land and did absolutely nothing with them. And this is a city that is going through a renaissance, it's going through a revitalization. We're on people's roadmap as a place to locate businesses. And rather than keep three, four hundred acres of land sitting as fallow land with some grass growing on it and weeds, let's try to get it back into circulation. Now, if that's your plan, Mr. Mr. Kestenbaum, if I'm the mayor, I can get behind that in a heartbeat because, oh, great, jobs and (laughs) a tax assessment and all those other good things for a city council. But if you're planning to sit on it, please don't. Can we work with you to get it back in production in some other ways? And that's what we thought with Landco might be the opportunity that we could take this fallow brownfield land and do something wonderful with it. If all he's doing is sitting on it as a land trust, and yeah, maybe in 10 years, maybe in 20 years I'll do something with it, boy, what an opportunity lost for the city. Yeah, but if that was his mindset, because uh, the speculation that, that you've talked about here indicates that that's not his mindset, 
Why would he buy it back just to sit on for 10 years? Because you've told us before, he's probably not even going to own this thing in 10 years. Yeah, that's the thing that catches me by surprise. Why would I? And also, he had to spend $114 million to do that. Now, that starts to get to be significant money in Mr. Kestenbaum's world. A million isn't, but $114 million. So, yes, it seems pretty logical that he's got some kind of a plan involved. But, boy, it'd be nice if we knew what it was. So, um, uh, I just know historically, again, if I look back historically, what Mr. Kestenbaum does is he takes Company X and he adds a piece and adds a piece and adds a piece and adds a piece. And eventually, after 10 or 15 years, he's made a much bigger company, and that's when he goes to sell it. So unlike the first time Stelco went through creditor protection and wound up in the hands of Appaloosa Capital, what have you, they only held on to it for two and a half years before they flipped it. That's not Mr. Kestenbaum's modus. He does flip, but he tends to flip after 15 years and after significantly adding more pieces to the empire. So uh, I, I would love to know what his plan is for that land. All right, let's uh, ask about the elephant in the room here, and that's the Trump factor. I mean, with tariffs mm-hmm. on steel, uh, is this a good time that uh, that Mr. Kessenbaum will be even looking at expanding operations? <laughs> well, again, those are good questions. So I have to come at that in two different directions. Last week, just randomly by accident, I had a conversation with somebody from DeFasco, and I said, by the way, you know, how have you been affected by the tariffs? Have you had massive cancellations of orders? And the answer was, no, Marvin, not at this point, because the people we sell in the United States Uh, they don't know what's going on. Uh, They can't find an alternate source of supply fast enough. So they're they're just paying the tariff. And by the way, the Canadian dollar has fallen a little bit. So even though you pay 25% because the Canadian dollar is lower, they're not actually paying a full 25% more for steel. Uh, He said, nobody's doing this. Now, if it goes on for three, four, five years, sure, they'll do something. But it takes time. And the current thinking, the current thinking is that Uh, these tariffs might only last another three to six months because of the midterm elections in the United States. And if a Democratic Congress comes in who owe nothing to Mr. Trump, they'll tell him that he's overextended his authority and they'll cut him off at the knees. So people are sort of just paying it to get through the situation and and sunshine down the road. Now, it's also, so that was DeFasco. Stelco, uh, while it's made in Canada steel, it's an American owned company, head office, New York City. So I have a suspicion that Mr. Keston and Mr. Cheney and their salespeople, when they go out to sell, are flouting flouting the fact that it's American. It's an American company. You're buying American steel. Oh, technically it's made in Hamilton, but, you know, test. That's just technically, that's not really anything for you to worry about. So uh, at the moment, I don't think he's willing to give up on it. Now, what impact does Trump have? Well, what he does, generally speaking today, is cause uncertainty in the market by, you know, standing on the rock and waving his cane and saying, oh, don't get me mad, there'll be more tariffs down the road. He basically causes the market to pause. People don't tend to make big investments one way or another because they're just not sure where he's going. So for Mr. Kastenbaum, If I was concerned with Trump, this is not the time for me to announce a big expansion here in Hamilton. I would wait. But I might wait just six to nine months. And in the meantime, I'm still going to do my planning. I'll just do it behind closed doors. So to to really get to the bottom line to your question, if we think we're going to get clarity from Mr. Kestenbaum soon, I think we won't hear anything from him until 2019. So in the 30 seconds we have left then, uh, do we assume that it looks like something's going on? We just don't know what or when? Yeah, I think that's the best way to think of it. Why did you buy the land? You must have some plan, but when you're going to do and what you're going to do, we just don't have an idea. I get where where I'll call them old timers, want to see a blast furnace start. It was a real, it was real 
kick to the city when we shut down those blast furnaces. But to restart them is not a trivial operation. And, and there would be many other things he could do much less expensively, much le- more cleanly that I think he's more likely to do than restart the blast furnace. Which also could lead to more jobs. Absolutely. Just a different kind of job. Yeah. Marvin, as always, thanks so much for coming in today. Glad to be here. Marvin Ryder at the DeGroote School of Business. You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML. Air quality was certainly front and center for an awful lot of residents uh, through the lower city over the last couple of days. And as a result, Hamilton, as you just heard on CHML News, is planning to shut down a compost plant that they believe is the source of that stench at paralyzing parts of the lower city. Uh, Two Hamilton councillors were demanding to have the composting plant shut down, and uh, they're also possibly seeking some punitive measures. One of those is Ward 4 Councillor Sam Marula, who joins us on the Bill Kelly Show to uh, give us the lowdown on this. Sam, thanks for the time. Good to have you with us today. My pleasure, Bill. How long has this been going on? Well, Bill, uh, the actual plant itself, uh, which, for the record, I didn't support back in 2005 and six, um, has been operating since 2006. Having said that, it's been operating well with some isolated incidents in that um, uh, we were able to manage to deal with it operationally. Most recently, however, uh, as a result of legislative change in the processing, uh, the moisture ratio needed to be amended and altered. And as a direct result, the existing operational infrastructure, for some reason, isn't complying to the to the amended uh, ratio that the legislation dictates. So since that time, um, they've been having difficulties uh, finding a balance uh, for the order mitigation uh, to work. Having said that, we did allocate in budget $1.5 million um, just this spring to deal uh, with the older issues that were, were prevalent last summer as well. And we moved forward with it, but obviously something is not working. And as a direct result of that, we as a city need to to lead by example. And as you know, I've been very vocal uh, with industry in the East End, mm-hmm. particularly surrounding environmental issues surrounding odor, noise, and air, that it would be irresponsible for us knowing how, how vocal we have been in the past about these issues with the private sector, that we allow a facility that we own to act in, in an irresponsible manner from an environmental perspective that's impacting people's quality of life beyond one's comprehension unless you, you're subjected to it. So I know a lot of people outside looking in are thinking this may be knee-jerk or overreaction. Nonsense. If you were subjected to that ordering, I'm speaking on behalf of tens of thousands of people Literally, it, it, it basically drove people into their homes to close their windows, which compounded the problem on a couple of weekends because it, it's been a real problem last month when it was very, very hot. You, there's no escaping it, particularly if you don't have central air. So this becomes a, a, not only an environmental issue, but a public health issue and a quality of life issue that we are incumbent to, to, to find a solution for. And I need to applaud Chris Murray, our city manager, Dan McKinnon, our general manager of public works, um, they have been stellar, stellar uh, uh, staff members in understanding and working with me and, and by extension, the community in dealing with this issue. And I need to applaud them because 
we have a heck of a senior management team at the city of Hamilton. Sam, I want to go back to something you made a comment about just a second ago there, and and that's that there was a change in techniques or something that uh, the the ministry, I guess, this is a provincial ministry, obviously, uh, ordered, I guess, everybody that does this sort of work. Uh, What were they trying to fix by doing this? I'm trying to get my head around exactly why they had to change anything up at all. Now, I'm not going to pretend to understand the technical aspect of it, but my, from a layman's perspective, my understanding was that they were seeking a certain moisture level uh, in order to ensure that the compost uh, met environmental standards. And that moisture level is what has contributed to the problematic envir- uh, odor issues. So they were literally, I was told, manually, if workers were using holes, hoses, to water down the compost in order to uh, meet this particular objective, which is just, there's no science behind it. They were manually hosing down the material. Obviously, that process is not one in, that should be operating in this day and age. It, it, just se- it just seems as if to fix whatever problem they think they were fixing, they've created a bigger one. Exactly, to a point where we shut it down. So I asked uh, last year or a few months back that we not comply to the, that, that legislation uh, based on this particular issue, uh, and but having but by doing that, we would be breaching environmental laws, which is not leading by example either. We're, so I asked for an exemption uh, from that particular initiative until we figure out what do we need to do to mitigate it. So obviously they weren't allowing us the exemption. Uh, they really didn't allow us any option except what the option that's before us now, and that is to shut down the operation because frankly. Uh, it just can't continue the way it's operating. What about the people that are running this facility for you? It's, it's a, a company called AIM Environmental Group. Uh, right. As you mentioned, this is owned by the city, but obviously you've contracted this out. Uh, you've mentioned that there have been other incidences over the years since 2006 when this place began uh, that you've had some concerns with it. Have they worked with you on this? Have they have they been compliant? Have they been sympathetic to what you've been talking to them about? Well, firstly, I think the location of the plant is problematic. We already have an over-intensification of industry and noxious type of industry in the area. So even the littlest uh, amount more just compounds the problem. Uh, a facility like that should be out in a very rural area, uh, away from a, an intensified residential area, but that's another debate for another time. Uh, having said that, since 2006, we really have never had this kind of problem. We've had isolated incidents. And through our management team, we've been able to have them comply to mitigate those issues. Uh, so this really is a novel, unprecedented uh, level of uh, quality of life odor issues that have never been prevalent before. And because of the extreme nature of it, we needed to take an extreme stand, an aggressive one, and, and start the shutting down of this operation yesterday. But, but I'm wondering about, about their cooperation on this. I mean, you, you've been on council long enough to remember some of the problems that the city had years ago with Philip Environmental, with uh, some of the product that they were doing. And uh, they, they seemed to me at that time to be less than cooperative and, and rather indignant that, that the city would actually start calling them out on some of this stuff. How have these guys responded to your concerns? Well, to date, uh, based on my understanding from what staff is dealing with, they are, they are trying to be cooperative. But again, those are words. I, I, we need action. And frankly, this is another uh, variable to all of this is, is the point you've made in that it is contracted out and should this be something that we bring in health, similar to our water and sewer treatment plant, where we've, we had so many problems in the past, uh, in a part of my tenure on council, that we've been able to really bring that back to a level 
of responsible operations, particularly related to the older issues. So we have an experience. We have many, much experience, particularly for East Hamilton, in dealing with older issues. As you can recall, the water and sewer treatment plant was a, a nuisance um, as well with respect to quality of life issues surrounding older. But through the leadership of Dan McKinnon, who is now the general manager of public works, when he was at the water and sewer treatment plant, we were able to a significant and exhaustive process of studying and sourcing the problem and financing it, eliminate that problem. So this is another, another challenge, but we do have a proven track record, uh, particularly when it was Dan McKinnon at the helm, and we'll be able to work through this but we needed to take the drastic step of shutting it down and starting from scratch. All right. If city councillors uh, agree to what you're suggesting right now, Sam, uh, obviously oh, there are contractual obligations. I, I, I know some of the stuff has to be done in camera because you're talking about a contract that's in place. But is there is there a window of opportunity to do that if the city was inclined to go that way? Well, the contract um, is expires in 2020. So... The, the timing of this couldn't be any better, to be honest with you, to, to give us some leverage in dealing with the existing contract or potentially looking at an option of bringing it in-house. So the only blessing to this is that fact, is that it's coming to an end. The contract is coming to an end. So we are in a position uh, to, to put leverage on the negotiations to ensure not only are we going to fix it presently, but look at options of either bringing it in-house or tightening that contract to ensure that there are severe punitive measures in place if this kind of uh, this kind of behavior or this type of ineptitude uh, prevails in the future, do you have any punitive measures in the current contract? They are very weak. So, but there are there are punitive measures, but they're very weak, and we're relying more on the Ministry of Environment and Climate Change, who, by the way, and ironically, I've been I've been basically reporting violations on ourselves to the Ministry of Environment and Climate Change to try to seek some some action from them. Uh, because, frankly, um, as you know, we have a difficult time having the ministry respond to any type of odor, noise, or environmental issues. But I, li- we were literally, I was literally sending emails uh, to, to the ministry against a city-run operation. So uh, they were responsive. They did source it, which was a, was a good thing, because now we know, we can definitively know uh, that it's coming from that plant, which I knew from day one, but people were trying to tell me otherwise, um, and, and, and work towards a solution, uh, because... Being in denial about something doesn't solve a problem. And the fact that we're now uh, at a point of acknowledging that we have the problem, now the shutdown proves that we're, we're, in a, we're in a place and in a position to make the necessary changes to fix the problem. You mentioned that as you were exploring this in the initial stages, at least with this incident, Sam, that, that there were some people that were saying, no, 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 it's not coming from there at all. Who were those people? Were the people that were running the facility? Well, the combination of some of our own uh, junior staff, and the, the con- and obviously the contractor themselves, and so so this problem again started about three years ago. But everybody was telling me that it wasn't the plant when I knew it was. But again, not having not having engineering background or the technical background, um, obviously my opinion didn't hold that weight. Having said that, it finally came to fruition last year when Dan McKinnon became our general manager. And he took the extraordinary step and that step went on to confirm that it was actually our compost facility.
All right, now there are. Let's talk about implications now. You've got this place shut down now. The city staff, and as you mentioned, have already gone out there and said, "Okay, we're closing this down at least on a temporary basis." Uh, where's this stuff going? So that's what the, the plan that we're working on presently, and a communications plan will be unrolling unro- soon. Uh, we have that definitively in place yet. Because the concern that obviously a lot of folks are going to have is are you really just going to transfer the problem from one area to another? Well, it won't be uh, within Hamilton. I don't. Uh, we're looking for options, but again, there isn't another area in the city that could deal with compost that would have a intensified residential area that we presently do. So you're looking at another city then. So obviously you've got to start knocking on doors and say, will you take our garbage? No, no, no. I'm not saying that. I'm saying I'm not sure what the answer is. Uh, I'm not sure what the options are yet. Very premature. But that's what the options are working Okay, well, you're going to, and you, as you say, the city's going to roll that out, so we'll get those details hopefully shortly. But I know that some of the residents, and I'm sure they've contacted you, are going to be concerned about that. And uh, the shutdown is, is in place, and the transfer of that stuff is, is going to start soon, we're told. Yes. But uh, the other side of that, of course, Sam, is how long is it going to stay closed, and, and what criteria are you going to look for for them to reopen it? Well, the, it's going to stay closed until they figure out what the problem is, and the solution is in place, and then they'll reopen it accordingly. Until then, it will remain closed, and that's uh, our commitment. So you want to see some proof that they've done something about the problem before you, you give these guys the key again? Well, we, we have to, because right now we're in violation of environmental laws. So at this point, really legally, we're obligated to stay closed until the problem is resolved. All right, so there are a couple of things at play here. and You mentioned, obviously, about a contract that's coming up, and, and you, that'll be dealt with, I'm sure, down the road by, by you and the rest of City Council. The other is, is what you talked about and what you complained about when this whole thing came to your uh, table in the first place in 2005 is the location. Right. Uh, and and you got to wonder if this is just going to happen again and again and again simply because there's it's abutting residential neighborhoods. Uh, is there a possibility here that part of that discussion might be maybe this operation has to move someplace else? That would be my ultimate goal. I'm not sure how realistic it is. Having said that, uh, we did fight successfully to prevent three incinerators from being developed in the lower city along, along the waterfront. So at the time, everybody sells these projects at state of the art. But the problem is when they're not operating efficiently or effectively, they become a state of a mess, which we're presently experiencing. And as we warned in the past, these types of things are preventable if and only if and because of and only because people are willing to work towards diversifying these types of industries throughout the entire city rather than over concentrating one area. Sam, you also, I gotta let you go in a second, but you said you wanted to have a uh, closed door meeting at City Hall about this. Uh, is, is this about contractual concerns, or uh, what, 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 what's exactly the, the inspiration that, uh, that you need to actually have an emergency meeting about this? Well, contractual uh, obligations require that we be negotiating camera. Also, whatever personnel matters might be associated with it. I think council deserves an explanation as to how we got to this point. Because you know there's going to be a cost to this. Could this have been prevented? 
uh, how could it have been prevented, and how could we prevent it from happening in the future? Have you heard back from uh, the mayor and, and uh, I guess, the city clerk as to whether or not that meeting is going to happen? Well, my motion is coming forward Wednesday at council. Okay. And I've already uh, informed the clerk accordingly. We'll see how that rolls out. Sam, I appreciate the time. Thanks so much for this, and uh, good luck going forward. Thank you, sir. Have a good day. Sam Marula, Councillor for Ward 4, talking about the stench. Uh, listen, you know what it's like. I mean, you, you know, the day after the, the, the guys come in and pick up all the garbage and everything, the green bin lids are open, and, you know, once in a while, you kind of, as you're moving it back into the garage, you're just... It's a, whew, well, magnify that by about 10,000 times, and that's the kind of smell that those people are getting down there. So uh, we can understand just how significant the problem is. You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML. We know that uh, according to law, uh, there will be a federal election, and it's going to be in October of 2019, around the middle of that month. But there's speculation in Ottawa that it might actually happen sooner. Yesterday on uh, Global's uh, The West Wing, uh, Eric Sorensen, of course, was the host, and uh, Christopher Sands, director for the Center for Canadian Studies at John Hopkins University, uh, suggested that because of some of the pressure that's going on with NAFTA negotiations and with the Mexican election, uh, the Prime Minister may, in fact, decide to pull the plug on Parliament earlier than October of next year, uh, seeking a stronger mandate. Well, that, that's the speculation anyway. Would it happen? Could it happen? What would the ramifications be? Let's bring Christo Avalis into the conversation, Social Science and Humanities Research Council postdoctoral fellow at History, of course, of the University of Toronto. Christo, thank you for the time. Good to have you with us today. Good. Thanks for having me. This is an interesting theory, isn't it? An, an interesting hypothesis, anyway. And it has happened before, hasn't it? Yeah, no, certainly. I mean, historically in Canada, we, we never really used to have this kind of law that said, you know, we should have an election, you know, four years, roughly four years after the previous one. That's kind of more of an American imposition, you know, where their elections are kind of hard-coded, you know, into kind of November, you know, every every couple of years for the Congress and every four years for the president, et cetera. Canada, we always used to have it where you had to have an election every five years, but often you could have it sooner, uh, either because it's a minority parliament or even in a majority government, the, the Gibbon government felt that it would be advantageous to test the polls. Um, so in that sense, and that could still happen, because the reality is, is this current law isn't baked into our Constitution. It's not part of the Charter of Rights or, the, or, or anything of that sort. The law could be repealed, and, and as you know, a lot of other people have noted, it's not just about that. You know, Trudeau could go to the Governor General and ultimately request uh, a Parliament be dissolved and an election be called, because the Governor General isn't necessarily upheld, uh, held to that, to that particular uh, you know, a uh, set election date law that was passed, you know, a, a little bit ago. The concern, if I remember historically, uh, the reason why this this bill was initiated and, and eventually passed by Parliament was they felt that uh, that other system where it had to be within five years, but it was pretty much up to the government as to even when the date was going to be, not just when the election was going to be, that uh, there was a concern there that the government of the day had way too much power and could actually use that uh, to their own advantage. In other words, this looks like a lousy time for an election, so I'm not going to have it now. Uh, I'm really high in the polls. I'm going to call an election now. And Jean Chrétien did that a couple, at least once, I think, maybe more times. But he's not the only prime minister that took advantage of, of the, the, I guess, the latitude within the existing rules back then. No, no, certainly not. I mean, it, it's it's certainly a, a tool that it, it's kind of home field advantage, if yeah, you will, for yeah. the government, especially in a, again, especially in a majority government where you you have full control um, you can certainly look at the polls and say, look, uh, you know, we're only three years in, 
Uh, but things are looking good right now. The opposition parties are in shambles, potentially. Now's the time to call an election. Or you could even maybe more cynically say, look, i got some unpopular decisions I need to make in the next year or so, but I'm popular right now. Let me make an election call, make those tough decisions, and then I'll have four years, maybe four years or so to let things cool down. But there's always been drawbacks to this as well. Um, as many people in Ontario know, one of the reasons um, the NDP won in 1990, of course, there was, there was policies that were popular. There was dissatisfaction with the other parties. But there was the Liberal government at the time was seen as especially arrogant for calling an election you know, only a few years into their mandate. A lot of people thought that was arrogant. They thought it was a waste of taxpayer money uh, and, and all of those things. So there are, there are potential drawbacks to calling an early election. Uh, and it could, you know, could cost you in some cases. Yeah, it, it paid off for Kretchen, but I think that had a lot more to do with the fact that, as you said, the, the political right was in disarray then. I mean, we still had a couple of parties there uh, where that vote was split up among uh, the two of them. I think it was still the Reform Party back in those days, and, of course, the Conservative Party. Uh, you're right, and David Peterson got spanked in Ontario for doing the exact same thing. So it does have risks, obviously. No, certainly. So, you know, with Justin Trudeau's perspective, you might argue that you know, it, it, he probably wouldn't call it this year. You might see, for instance, him wait to see what happens with the U.S. election coming up in November. Now, of course, Trump himself isn't up for re-election. It's only be the halfway point of his of his four-year term. But uh, one-third of the Senate is up for re-election, and the entirety of the, the Congress is up for re-election. And there's a sense that if the Republicans take a bit of a beating in the polls, it could make things difficult for Trump. Now, there's all these debates about what Trump can do in terms of the executive role of the office in terms of trade negotiations. But certainly, you know, a Democratic surge in the polls would weaken Trump and may give Trudeau a bit more, a bit more confidence going forward. But as the, as the piece you noted uh, earlier in the, in the uh, interview uh, stated, uh, Trudeau might think that, you know, an early election could help him give, a, give him a stronger bargaining position for Trump or uh, vis-a-vis Trump. But I also think that, you know, right now, at least, Trudeau's gotten a bit of bump of popularity kind of being juxtaposed to Trump on this issue. Uh, and not just from traditional liberals. He's, his position's kind of been seen as what needs to happen from, from, uh, from conservatives and, and, and some new Democrats as well. And, and if Trudeau feels that if he could run an election almost in a sense against Trump, that might be advantageous to him. Um, so that maybe that's something he could do in, say, the spring of 2019 versus the fall of 2019 and be better positioned to do so. And, and we've seen this happen with the NAFTA negotiations, really, haven't we, Christo? I mean, the fact that there isn't a deal is, is not just a simple answer. It's, it's a rather complex uh, circumstance. But part of the problem, of course, was that Mexico is going through an election right now, and it looks as if uh, the current uh, president probably is going to be knocked off which is going to mean starting all over again with Mexico, because the new guy apparently is not such a big guy on, on, on trade deals. So, you know, it's, I don't want to say it's lame duck, but it pretty much is. If you're in the last year of your term, uh, whoever is opposing you, whoever's debating you, whether it's an NAFTA deal or tariffs or whatever else, is frig- fr- probably thinking, look, it, I just got to wait a few months. This guy's probably going to get knocked off in the election, and I'll, I'll be happy with the next guy. And So Trudeau's, I guess, looking to strengthen his hand if, if in fact, he decides to do this. No, I think that would be one of the arguments. I think there's a domestic and an international kind of element to this decision. And I think you're right in capturing the international one. It does make a lot more sense to go to Trump uh, and say, "Look, you know, I've been elected, and and you know, uh, you, in Canada, you could certainly say if uh, when a, when a party has a majority government, 
that's a stronger position than even a Republican majority in both the House and Senate. Um, the, the prime minister is much more powerful in that context than the president could ever hope to be. So he could go with a strong hand to Trump and say, you know, effectively, I have control of, of all policy, whereas you have still have to deal with this. I have a stronger position than you. But the domestic play, I think, for Trudeau is specifically is around being able to capitalize on this on this being being juxtaposed to Trump, because whereas you know, I think on, on key policy matters, the only party that's been steadfastly opposed to Trump and what he believes in is the New Democrats. Trudeau's actually been quite conciliatory to Trump. I mean, the most, you know, he's been seen with uh, Trump uh, taking Ivanka Trump to the play, and he's refused to critique Trump and, uh, uh, unless he's been pressured by working Canadians and, 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 and the New Democrats. But he could find this opportunity to juxtapose himself to Trump in an election where he's seen for standing up for Canadian values and he's seen standing up for Canadian industries and whatnot. And that, that's something that he might need, um, you know, it, should he continue to kind of see some difficulties in the polls that he's been seeing as, you know, Andrew Scheer has been rising and even Jagmeet Singh, especially in Ontario, has been seeing new success. Yeah, let's let's shatter a myth here. Any politician that's making public statements always says, oh, "I don't pay attention to the polls," and we, you, we know they all do, right? I mean, Mr. Trudeau and whether and Mr. Shear and Mr. Singh, all of them are looking at the polls and saying, "Where are we right now? What do we have to do to improve our situation?" And he, and you're right, he's seen a bump right now, and it's because he stood up to Trump and. Obviously, he's he had a pretty lousy year up until that point. Uh, you know, he wasn't doing too well. Sheer was coming up there. A couple of polls actually had the the conservatives ahead of the liberals uh, for a week or two, and that, that's it's kind of iffy right now. They're just about even, I guess, in a lot of these polls. So he's he's got to play to his strength right now and saying apparently the public likes it when I do this with Trump. No, certainly I think so, and I think a lot of people have said that because you know my my view all along has been that you know Canada has you know a broad coalition of of voters who would not be very uh, keen on Trump. That probably includes almost every single liberal, new Democrat, and green. But frankly, a lot of conservatives in Canada, I don't think, would support the kind of conservatism Trump uh, espouses. So I think that, you know, it's a popular play, in my view, to critique Trump. Now, of course, you know, you can't do it so bombastically all the time. But I think what the, this recent round of, of, of affairs has shown is that, you know, Trudeau's tried to play Mr. Nice Guy to Trump, and he still, you know, attacks Canadians. He still uh, talks about us scuffing up our shoes so we can steal them across the border. And, and, and I think that, you know, maybe Trudeau's realizing what people have been saying all along to him is that, look, you, there's no point in being Mr. Nice Guy to Trump. Um, you, you have to attack him. And I think you're right about polls. The reality is that we see, you know, quite a bit of polls here in Canada, but the parties have much more um, strenuous or much more, str- uh, you know, uh, strong and reliable data uh, from internal numbers. And you're, 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 you're extremely right in saying that they are following the general polls. But what they also do periodically, especially when close to elections, but also in between elections, is they, you know, they, they do focus groups. They poll on specific issues. They poll on specific messaging. And you can be uh, pretty confident that, you know, Trudeau, his recent bump in the polls is being studied by the liberals and studied by the, the opposition parties as well to see why this is working and how they can be carried forward. And as, again, as we've been talking about, perhaps this is a strategy for the, for, for the, for the, for the Liberals uh, should they need to call an early election or feel they, they have the advantage in calling an early election. But if, in fact, they follow the strategy, it's not going to be slam dunk for Trudeau, I, I would think, uh, Christo, because uh, 
first of all, the opposition, more, more than likely Andrew Scheer, obviously the conservative leader, is going to say, don't give him a stronger mandate. I can do a better job than he did. Uh, so you got to bring me in. So, it, you know, that may be the, the scenario for calling the election. But, boy, it, it's, it's going to be a fist fight once the, if, in fact, that happens uh, once that campaign starts. Yeah, no, I think that's a good point. I think from Scheer's perspective, it could actually be quite tricky because the, the perception, at least, say, since the 1970s or 1960s, is that the conservatives have been the kind of more pro-American, more pro-free trade party. And I think the, the being free trade in this context might be seen as a good thing because, you know, Canada is the party seen as standing up for, for, or for NAFTA as a concept more generally. But the, the negative, though, is that you don't want to be seen as being pro-Trump. I mean, there was a piece from a notable right-wing columnist in the Washington Post saying that Canada should just surrender to Trump and give in to what he wants. And, you know, Doug Ford took a lot of heat for saying that he was an unabashed Trump supporter. Um, that could create difficulties. And if, if she is seen as the kind of guy that will roll over to big American businesses and to Trump himself, that could be dangerous. I think there's also dangers from Trudeau because the reality is that um, when it comes to, again, the consistent opposition to Trump and everything he stands for, that's playing into the natural NDP constituency. And that could create big difficulties for him uh, if he tries to empower kind of left-wing energies like he did in 2015. But if the NDP is better able to capture those energies this time, much like how Kathleen Wynne tried to, you know, pretend to be a progressive, and then Andrea Horwath took her thunder, and all, and all Kathleen Wynne could, could, could hope to do is become the most anti-labor premier in modern history in those last couple of weeks. Trudeau himself could try to run to the left against Trump, find Jagmeet Singh takes his thunder, and he's got nowhere to go because Shear's got himself pr- firmly planted uh, on the right. So that's the risk for Trudeau. If he, if he if that's a strategy in 2019, yeah, and we saw that uh, even uh, when Trudeau took the stand with Trump uh, at the G7, uh, you know, even when other conservatives like Brian Mulroney and Jason Kenney and and as you mentioned, even Doug Ford said he stood shoulder to shoulder with the Prime Minister on this issue, she was rather guarded in his support because uh, obviously he knows that no matter what I say here, it's going to come back and bite me about a year from now when we're, when we're in an election campaign. Yeah, no, certainly. I think in general, he's he's. Sheer has kind of done his part. I mean, you know, both main opposition parties have kind of, in their own way, said they stood with Trudeau from the NDP. You had Tracy Ramsey. She's one of the, 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 the critics for the NDP, kind of an NDP frontbencher, uh, talking about uh, passing a motion in Parliament, uh, supporting Trudeau's general efforts to, to stand up to Trump. And then Sheer, uh, you know, had to make a difficult decision um, to basically boot Bernier out of the cabinet or out of his shadow cabinet, if you will, not out of the caucus, but out of a kind of position of influence within the party, largely because I think Bernier was seen as taking the pro-American line uh, when he said that supply management is bad. And that's one of the key American arguments. So Scheer, I think, standing up for the farmer base within his party, but also trying to, to try to cut off any, any perception that, you know, the, the, the conservative party is Team Trump. I think that's what he had to do there. So I think you're right that it's going to be difficult, but I think he has tried to indicate that he is in general support with the, the, the Canadian bargaining position, because otherwise I don't think he would have turfed Bernier uh, from his position. Krista, does the, the public buy into this? I mean, if, if, the, if the rationale for, for calling an early election is going to be we, we, we've got to be strong for NAFTA, does that matter to the public? I mean, I, th- I think a lot of people know what NAFTA is, but is is it such a burning issue to them that they're going to say, yeah, you know, he's right, we need to actually have an election on this? Because more often than not, when you call an early election, the, the, the electorate gets pretty ticked off at you initially. 
No, they do. They do. Now, the question is, is that historically, you know, elections called in that last year weren't necessarily seen as early. You know, like, you know, if you were if you were elected in 1994 and, you know, elections called in that 1998 period, even if it was, say, earlier in 1998 than it was in 94 when you got elected, people don't necessarily see that as the same kind of thing as David Peterson calling kind of calling it in his third year. So, you know, there's a bit of a distinction there. Um, I don't know if people will buy it as the reason to seek an election. Um, I don't know if they'll, they'll be angered by that argument. I think that if an election's called in, say, early to mid-2019 instead of, you know, later 2019, um, Trudeau might see a bit of criticism, but I don't know if that will be the main issue because, you know, it's close enough to the election date. I don't think a lot of Canadians even know about the... The, the, the election law kind of mandating uh, fixed dates, I think that's a bit of inside baseball. I think a lot of older Canadians probably just assume that we have the same system we always did, which is the government can call elections when the government wants to call elections. Um, you know, I don't know if, 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 if people will say, you know, Trudeau's right, we need to have an election and give a strong mandate on this. But it might be credible enough that, that, that for voters who are really ticked off about early elections, they might say, OK, it kind of makes a bit of sense. Well, we'll see what happens. It's speculative at this stage, but uh, <laughs> who knows. Christo, thanks as always. Great having you on the program again today. Thanks for having me. Christo Avelis uh, from University of Toronto. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML.